Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, rejoining us for the afternoon session of the Cato Surveillance Conference in the Hayek Auditorium here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I, again, am Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow here. Uh, we're going to lead into our first afternoon panel with, uh, with a, a one-off uh, short talk. Um, if you read dystopian science fiction, you may recognize the idea of a world where sensors are embedded in everything. Uh, cameras and microphones in your TV, uh, sensors in your car, in your toaster, um, tracking uh, what people do in a way that becomes increasingly difficult to avoid as sensors, sensors saturate material space. Uh, but that is increasingly not a, a sci-fi description of a police state, but a description of a world we are voluntarily creating for the sake of convenience. And there are some benefits to be had from smart devices uh, that can uh, predict our need and, and take advantage of uh, sharing information over networks. Um, but it also creates serious privacy risks. And so uh, to sort of prime the panel discussion that my colleague Matthew Feeney will introduce, I'd like to bring up uh, Heather West of Mozilla to talk about their guide to the Internet of Things and the many cases in which privacy is not included. Thanks, Julian. Um, so, let's see. Aha. Um, so today, I wanted to talk about Internet of Things and these sensors. And my life is basically the dystopian science fiction novel now. Like, I talk to my, the air in my house, and the lights turn on, and it's wonderful. Um, but I, we know that, that most people aren't reading the privacy policies. I don't necessarily. We're not thinking about that um, in terms of a holiday buying guide. Uh, and so one of the things that we did around a lot of these incredibly popular connected devices um, was to kind of look at the privacy implications of, of these uh, devices. Uh, and we put out a report. It's called Privacy Not Included. Um, you can search that online and get to the buyer's guide, or that's the URL. Um, and, and so in trying to reach people, we, we knew that we had to simplify. We had to think about things that would be useful and impactful for them um, and, and really help educate about these sensors so that people are making smart decisions. Um, we don't want to tell anybody to buy, anything, buy something or not buy something. We want to let them make that choice. Um, but to back up just a little bit, Mozilla is a mission-driven software company. We make Firefox. Uh, but our mission is actually education around the internet and trust and making the internet a better place for people. Uh, and so that is one of the reasons that we started looking at IoT. Um, so this is the second year that we have released the Buyer's Guide. And apologies that this particular sh shot is a little bit grainy. Um, but you can take a look and um, you know, uh, see what we evaluated and, and some of those, um, you know, what we thought was interesting, what we thought was important, what we thought was you know, more or less fine, what we thought was a little bit creepy. Um, in looking at all of these products, uh, we developed something we call the minimum security standards, uh, specifically five things that we think every connected device ought to do because it has sensors, because there are data flows, because it is a part of your life. Um, and those five things that we evaluated each of these products on are, um, does the product use encryption? It's pretty important. Um, did, does the company have the ability to provide automatic security updates? Um, does the product use a non-standard password? Um, 
for example, there was a baby monitor that has a, a hardwired password of one, two, three, which is really not ideal. Um, uh, we want the, these companies to have a vulnerability management program so that if someone comes in and says, hey, I figured out how to ha hack your thing, they can then push that security update. Um, and they must have a privacy policy. This is a relatively low bar, we think, and it is a, as such, the minimum security standards. Uh, we worked with Consumers International and the Internet Society to develop this, um, and we applied those criteria to the products in the guide. Um, we reviewed 70 products, and 32 meet the minimum security standards, so about half. Um, so these 70 products across six categories, um, we, we also know that we, our, our users, the people who are looking at this guide, also just want the really quick and easy version of this. This, we looked at the privacy policies, we did some, some technical testing, uh, and tried to simplify everything down. Um, this is actually from the Nintendo Switch. They did pretty well, um, which is great because there's one sitting in my living room. Um, and, but we knew that we could also simplify it even a little bit more. Um, and, and make it a little interactive and more interesting to people. So we invented the Creepometer. Um, I was joking earlier that this presentation probably has 100% more emojis than anybody expected. Um, and, uh, but what we did is we, went, we created a way for consumers to rate how they felt about a particular product. Because one thing that we know is that the context matters, and having a particular aspect of a product in a Nintendo Switch is very different than um, a remote unlock for my door. Uh, one of those is a different physical security risk, and the, if it is the you know, Amazon Ring, for example, it has a lot more power over my life than a Switch that I can just turn off. Um, but the Creepometer, uh, people loved it. We actually got we have somewhere north of 50,000 uh, interactions with it so far, which is ratings. Um, and then they can say whether they're likely to buy it, which to note, um, the, the likely to buy it percentage and the, the not creepy percentage are different, which I think is actually really interesting and useful uh, to compare. Um, it's, it is turned into one of the kind of iconic things that we are thinking about in terms of how to educate around um, this, this, this stuff. Um, and, and people are actually kind of reaching out to us and talking to us about uh, the, the, the guide and the ratings. Uh, for example, there was a guy in San Diego who worked for the fire department where they'd been, you know, they had been recommending a smart doorbell with a camera in it. But they, now they were concerned, should they be actually recommending this to people? Um, and he wanted to know whether the product was safe. It wasn't one that we evaluated. Um, and we just don't have the resources to evaluate everything. And of course, 70 connected devices is just a drop in the barrel. Um, and you know, he, but that, that guy from the fire department started thinking about these devices a little bit differently. And that's exactly what we want to happen. Um, even though, you know, this is, is a good start. Um, we started hearing from the press, and they wanted to know about these products. So it's become a resource. It's useful. I think um, 
we're going to keep working with folks. Some companies have actually reached out um, and said, hey, we think you got it a little bit wrong, and we are happy to chat um, and, and make sure that we actually get it right. We don't want to be you know, maligning a product that isn't bad. Um, so notably, there, was some, there are some products that do really, really well. The Nintendo Switch actually has like a 72% not creepy rating. Um, the, I don't think it's on this slide. Um, there's, a, there's a drone that did very well. Um, there's a baby monitor that did really badly. Um, there's a connected coffee maker that did well. Um, and it's actually really interesting. But one of my favorite parts is on the product, it has the what if something goes wrong section. And it's not that we expect anything to go wrong, but it's the what if it does. What if your door unlocks itself? What if someone sniffs your Zelda game on your Switch? You know, there, there's different kind of things that we can all think about in terms of what those uh, scenarios look like. And it's, it's so contextual and the preferences are so personal that, that we think that is the right way to do it. Um, I think one of the goals here is besides uh, educating people who are going to buy these for themselves or for, for you know, friends and family, uh, is to show companies that people care. And even if uh, most of the buyer's guides are based on price or features, um, privacy is something that people will think about. Um, and we did actually give badges to all of the um, all of the products who met the minimum security standards. So you can go and look and actually, um, it's relatively easy. The Harry Potter coding kit did very well, which made me happy. I'd never even heard of it. Um, and, uh, and really, the fact that 30, 32, 33 of them actually passed is nice. Um, but it's really also worrisome and interesting that half didn't. Um, I think you know, making sure that those considerations are a part of the discussion and part of the product development lifecycle um, has to be the next step when we're talking about connected devices. Um, and this is the best slide. Oh, nope, that's not the best slide. I skipped it. Um, but so yes, there was a connected teddy bear that did not do well. The switch did well. Um, this baby monitor did terribly. All right, I knew I had slides with pictures. Um, that baby monitor is the one with the hard-coded 123 password, um, which uh, is actually the plot of a very terrible show called CSI Cyber. Their first episode was about connected baby monitors getting hacked. Um, so it, we are in that dystopian sci-fi sci reality, except it's both wonderful and terrible at the same time. Um, all right, this slide. 100% more emojis than expected. Um, in terms of our engagement and Mozilla thinking about this, this topic and really helping people think about the creepometer, think about is this device worth it? Um, we're gonna keep adding to the guide. We're gonna keep thinking about new devices. Uh, the advocacy team is uh, offering slash threatening to do a Valentine's Day version uh, for connected sex toys. Um, because they, they're out there. Um, we're taking these lessons and, and kind of feeding back into our privacy work um, and uh, trying to think about those next steps. We're going to start thinking about embedded artificial intelligence and machine learning in these products. Um, of these 70, about 20 had embedded AI. 
people have actually started asking us, why didn't you evaluate Alexa? But Alexa is not a product. Alexa is AI. Um, and so we are thinking about how to expand this work, um, put even more emojis in maybe, uh, and think about how to uh, really help people understand the products that they are choosing. So take a look. Um, I'm happy to, to chat about any of this, answer questions. Um, and I think the goal now is to talk about what are the implications of the Internet of Things and connected devices in the context of surveillance. Not necessarily corporate surveillance, but corporate surveillance, government surveillance, etc. So, thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, I do not have as many emojis to present. Um, sorry. Uh, my name is Matthew Feeney. I'm the director of Cato's Project on Emerging Technologies. It's my pleasure to welcome you to uh, this panel, where we'll be, we will be discussing the surveillance implications of the Internet of Things. Uh, I want to men, uh, introduce the uh, two speakers who you don't know. Uh, the first is Professor Andrew Ferguson, who teaches and writes in the area of criminal law, criminal procedure, and evidence at the University of the District of Columbia's David A. Clark Law School. He's a national expert on juries, predictive policing, and the Fourth Amendment. I think uh, Heather's presentation might have prompted some of you to cross off some items off your holiday uh, Christmas uh, holiday list. Uh, but I can recommend Andrew's book, The Rise of Big Data Policing. Uh, Andrew was nice enough to come to Cato, uh, I think it was last year or earlier this year, uh, to talk through his ideas with uh, me, and me and some of my colleagues, and I wholeheartedly recommend it. His legal commentary has been featured in numerous media, media outlets, including CNN, NPR, The New York Times, The Economist, and many other outlets. The other speaker we have with us here is Hannah Quaid de Lavalle, who is a senior technologist at the Center for Democracy and Technology. While she brings her technical expertise to bear across CDT's projects, she is primarily focused on the Student Privacy Project, which is dedicated to ensuring students are able to maintain the privacy of their data while still reaping the benefits of advances in educational technology. Uh, she received a PhD in computer science from Brown. Uh, and for her dissertation, she designed and built tools that help users better manage privacy on the mobile devices. While preparing for this panel, I was uh, going through a, a, an article that Andrew wrote. I feel like I'm your publicist at this point, but I'll, uh, yeah. So uh, he wrote a, uh, an article on the Internet of Things and the Fourth Amendment, uh, which I think included a, a great uh, quote from a New York Times article that uh, discussed the kind of world we might soon be living in. Uh, the quote goes, in a world where objects are connected to the internet, you could imagine one sock emailing the other to say it fell behind the dryer. Your car would know when your carburetor is acting up and automatically set up an appointment with your mechanic to fix the issue. Or the buttons on your shirt could be heart monitors that notify your doctor if you're not feeling well. And these all seem like, I suppose, great applications of technology, but I'm reminded that earlier this year there was a story about the fitness app Strava, which released a uh, data visualization map, which included three trillion individual GPS location points, which uh, inadvertently revealed the locations of some US military uh, bases in Syria, as well as a French military base in Niger. 
So uh, with that, I will uh, move to the front of the stage to, I guess, ask uh, the panel the first question. So I think actually I'll start with, uh, start with uh, Andrew and say, more domestically, what's, uh, what are the, what does it mean for surveillance uh, when we're considering these networked devices? What are the threats out there? And uh, I suppose a uh, natural follow-up is what can we do about it? Sure. So I am a uh, law professor who studies criminal law and uh, criminal procedure and sort of how technology impacts policing. And we are in a world of sensor surveillance, sensor surveillance, where uh, police have the potential to be able to obtain a lot more information about all of us. I mean, it used to be if you were a police officer, you had to sit in a hot car and drink cold coffee and watch your suspect go down their, ba- their daily business and follow them uh, on their path of crime. Today, you can sit and watch as they leave their smart home and get into their smart car with their smart Fitbit on, telling their heart rate and everything else they're doing, uh, and go about their business in a way where you can follow using data trails in a whole new way. And it opens questions about, are there any protections, legal or constitutional, that could stop that? And even if you say there might be some Fourth Amendment protections around government just doing it in a way of sort of true surveillance without a, a case, what happens when you get a warrant? And you can actually go in and find all of the detail that that smart home is collecting. If you think about a truly networked home that will know when you go to bed, when you stay up doing fun things on Saturday nights, or when you are drinking too much, when you are, the conversation you're having, we are just opening up a world to law enforcement that's just going to change the power relationship between the government and people. And so we are at this early stage of the Internet of Things that is in large part brought on by us, right? Your list, which is a wonderful, wonderful list, shows just how... um, how pervasive it is. Like the top purchases in, for this holiday season are going to be these products. It's only going to grow. And we're going to be building things into our smart cars. They're literally going to be computers. You'll be driving a computer. It's not going to be a car. It's going to be a computer. It's going to know exactly where you went, how fast you went, when you were speeding, when you weren't speeding, all of those things. And that will be incredibly valuable for law enforcement, both as a surveillance tactic, but also as an investigative tactic. And so I think that where we are now is asking hard questions about shouldn't we be pushing back? Shouldn't we see what is happening and what will happen in the future to start writing either laws that will push back on it, maybe hoping courts will interpret the Fourth Amendment in a more protective uh, way, and just educating. This is what's so wonderful about your project, educating all of us that this is the world that we are doing to ourselves that is changing uh, the power because of these very smart devices. That, and this is, this is the granular nature. Like Your heart stent or whatever can tell, or in your Fitbit can tell, like, when you're using drugs. Not that you are, but when you're using drugs, right? And that's something that we might want to have a conversation about. What are the privacy protections on that? Can we make sure that that is something that we can expect to, to keep private? Not that you should be using drugs. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. But, but that this is something that we need to have a, a national conversation about, about how these technologies are changing the information available. So Hannah, uh, Heather discussed a, a project that is helping to identify some of the issues, and uh, Andrew's keeping a close eye on the law. But when it comes to producers, is there anything that they can do to do uh, the heavy lifting of informing us when it comes to privacy issues associated with the Internet of Things? Uh, And by producers, you mean producers of IoT products? So yeah, manufacturers, producers of the products. Yeah, I I certainly think um, 
you know, there's, there's plenty they could do from an information standpoint, right? I mean, you can think about even the fact that, you know, I'll, I'll piggyback a lot on Heather's talk in this answer because I think she brought up some really good issues. Um, and a good example of this is your sort of like baseline security steps are, are very baseline, right? And the fact that over half of the products failed those is pretty concerning. Um, and so from an education standpoint, you can imagine, A, that they should meet some of those things and then explain why it's important that they met them. And you know, the, the password is a great example of this. Um, there's been a proliferation of internet botnets, and one of the big ways that they do it is just default passwords, right? And so you have situations where you can't even change the password, but even situations where you can, uh, the setup of IoT products often doesn't prompt that. It doesn't explain why that's a thing you would want to do. Um, it doesn't explain the risks that you're exposed to if you don't do that. Um, and so I, you know, I think uh, sort of explaining that this thing, this, this IoT product that you're bringing into your home, as you say, is in fact a computer, and it carries with it all of the attendant risks that a computer does. And I think that consumers are growing increasingly aware of the sort of cybersecurity risks of their computers and their phones, but we don't necessarily think of our connected home in quite the same way. Um, and so I think emphasizing the sort of computerness of these, product, these products would be a, a big step in the right direction. Right, Heather, I was wondering about how to gauge the, the creepiness. Because someone might say, well, I bought these devices and I get a ton of benefit, them, benefit from them. I like that uh, my smart home knows more and more about me. So it's not creepy. I know that I put information out there and, and that's fine. Uh, what's, what's a response to that? And uh, a, a follow-up is, are there any producers of the products that you've been uh, analyzing that actually do a good job at making this information available? Um. I think that it is still very difficult for people to really understand the potential implications. Um, I think there are a few really, really good examples. I think Fitbit, which I have and love, um, it's on my body most of the time, um, was talking about what if the heart rate monitors could detect uh, heart arrhythmias. That would be an incredible service. Oh no, we just became a medical device. Oh no. You know, like that was an unanticipated use of this sensor. Um, and. I, I, do, I think they abandoned this for lots of regulatory issues. Um, but one of the things that manufacturers need to be doing is actually changing this, this expectation that the setup has to be incredibly fast, that you, you don't want to bother the user and say, oh, set a password. And you don't want to kind of talk about, ooh, the scary things. And you never want to talk about the scary things, right? Um, the connected teddy bear, I don't know exactly which connected teddy bear that is, actually, but we did a lot of work last year on something called Cloud Pets, which was a connected teddy bear. Um, and we found some vulnerabilities in it. Um, we tried to reach out to this company. And we're like, hey, hey, guys, can you fix this? Um, we got nothing, no response. Um, their website was more or less shuttered. Uh, it turned out they'd gone bankrupt, and just no one knew. Um, but that's the kind of thing that if you are a... Um, it was kind of marketed to especially folks in the military who were overseas and they could record little messages for their kids. That's fantastic. Um, the fact that someone can sniff those messages via Bluetooth, not great. Um, so thinking about that and really making it clear to companies who are developing this that people want the information um, and that people are interested is a useful thing. I think we are in a very interesting point um, in this dialogue where people care about this in a way that is, they are realizing that these are little computers. And I do like that framing. Um, and my house is full of all sorts of little computers, and they make my life a lot better. Um, 
but they need to be something that we think very consciously about, and that's the way that we're going to get people, people to educate themselves and to kind of demand that kind of transparency from manufacturers. Mm -hmm. uh, we've spoken a, a bit about the, I suppose, criminal potential, right, to, to hack, but uh, in, in the law enforcement context, what, what's the actual protection that surrounds these devices? Uh, the, the Fourth Amendment says, you know, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. And couldn't an argument be made that, well, these are effects, they're protected? Or am I being somewhat naive here, Andrew? <laughs> no, no, so there are a couple issues. There's the constitutional protection in the Fourth Amendment. There's statutory protections about essentially wiretapping if you want to turn that smart teddy bear into a spy device. Like that could be uh, tempting, hopefully illegal, but tempting without uh, some kind of warrant, uh, wiretap warrant. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the complication is you have the Fourth Amendment, right, written uh, at the time of our founding that certainly was not envisioning uh, smart homes or smart cars or smart objects that we're going to talk to you and talk to others. And yet the principles do apply, right? You have smart devices in your home. And so the law that has been created in the Fourth Amendment context about things that happen in your home um, probably can apply to uh, those smart devices in your home. A little bit harder when you go out in public, but we've had some Supreme Court cases that have sort of recognized that sort of aggregated locational data is something that the Fourth Amendment protects. The Jones case is one involving GPS that tracks you around. Carpenter, which is a third-party case I'll talk about in a second. Also, one where the Fourth Amendment has sort of adapted to this age. And so I think what we will be seeing is courts struggling uh, with this idea that this, co this concept we have of constitutional protection, of expectations of privacy, expectations of privacy and security, are something that should also be protected when your teddy bear starts recording you, um, but might have to be modified in a a new way. And what I think we will see is that the courts so far, and this is sort of optimistic in an otherwise dystopian day, uh, have been responding relatively positively. This, the Carpenter case that came out uh, this year involved whether police could obtain your cell site uh, locational data from a cell company, a third party provider, uh, and the court, Chief Justice Roberts writing, said that they did need a warrant to get there. Uh, and what that means is a greater protection of all of the information from the teddy bear company, from the Nintendo Switch company, uh, Nest and Google and all these places that are holding your data. It means that there must be a, uh, arguably a warrant requirement before law enforcement can get that. But just pause on that, because that's in some ways a, a pyrrhic victory, right? It's true that law enforcement needs a warrant, so that's good, there's something. But once they have that warrant, we really have opened up a new world for investigation. There are all these interesting cases coming out where you have uh, essentially IoT devices as witnesses in homicides. So there's a, a this is still anecdotal because they come out in their ways, but you have a case where a guy's alibi was undermined by his wife's Fitbit. His, you know, he basically had this whole story about what happened, and it turned out he had allegedly killed her a while earlier, and the Fitbit revealed the lie. You had cases where someone had create, did an arson and had this whole thing, but he was wearing a Fitbit or he had a pacemaker, and his pacemaker revealed the time where he was all panicked and all these running when he said he was somewhere else and doing something very calm. And so you're starting to see these data trails as evidence that are going to be incredibly valuable um, for uh, law enforcement. One last story involves an Alexa. There's a case out of New Hampshire where police wanted to get the Alexa device in the hopes that after a murder, that the murderer, alleged murderer, had queried Alexa for, like, how do you get rid of a dead body? Or how do you clean up blood or something? They, just, they didn't know it was there, but they, were, they wanted it. And they actually subpoenaed 
uh, Amazon for the information. There's now a court battle about why they should get it. But you just see the, the power of these revealing trails uh, that reveal so much about us. Hannah, what's a producer to do when maybe someone working at these companies are watching the conference and they think, well, actually, the gathering of this data makes the products better, that it's an important feature of a lot of these products that they do learn about us and they learn our habits. Uh, is there a way to navigate the convenience and privacy uh, problems here from the manufacturer's point of view? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think that the answer is a little disappointing um, in that, well, first of all, I do think that there's a sort of general thing that that producers could do, which is just sort of really be much more careful about what you consider essential to the functioning of your product, right? And I think that that's something historically um, technology companies haven't really been careful with um, simply because there is this sort of sense that the more data you have, the more potential you have for discovery, right? And I think that this, um, this sort of sense of potential value maybe has had its day, and we need to move on from that um, into actual, actually being able to very clearly point to what data you're collecting, what exactly your use case is for that, um, and given that use case, how long does it need to live? Um, and then how do you dispose of it when you're done? Um, and, and I think because, it, and this isn't limited to tech companies, this is pretty common of just maintaining a lot of information because you have this idea that in the future you will be able to, to learn something from it, you'll be able to improve your product. I think that that can be true, but um, I think the, the calculus needs to shift a little bit away from potential future value into if you can't recognize the value for it pretty quickly, maybe you don't need it. Um, and then to further that, uh, a lot of the value that can come sort of for product uh, improvements more grandly, you can do a lot of that with anonymized data. Um, so that would be companies collecting a lot of this data for future product improvements and then treating it in such a way that you can't actually tie it back to an individual person. That doesn't help you with products that you want to personalize, right? In that case, you really do actually need the data that's very tightly tied to a person. Um, and then I think, to some degree, the answer there is, you know, we need legal protections around it because there is value to this data. It does allow you to do really useful things. I mean, Alexa doesn't work without your talking to her all the time. And then, you know, you have created that data and it exists. So, I, you know, I think to some degree, a lot of this does need to happen on the legal side. Um, I do think that companies can just improve their security practices so that you know, this, this data isn't ending up through third parties where the legal, stand, the legal standard to get it is maybe more limited. Um, right. So that, that last point on uh, improving security reminded me of uh, Heather's uh, password one, two, three. Uh, so why, why would someone set a password to that? Because they're just not thinking about it. Um, okay. One of the things that, that um, was very interesting to me as, as we started poking around in this IoT space, um, is to be frank, I'm not worried about the tech companies. They kind of know that this stuff is important. I'm worried about the baby monitor company who did use one, two, three. And so when you have industries who are slapping a sensor and a connection onto their product, they often don't have the expertise or just don't think about it in-house um, that they have changed the game by creating this connected device. Um, I think that 
legal protections would be such a good, such a good idea. That would be amazing to like create that certainty and clear expectations. Um, but I, if if I'm a coder and I'm putting together the the code for this connection and and oh man, I need an update. Oh, I'll put in one two three, and I'll I'll fix it later. And later never comes. Um, and a lot of the time, that's because there's not a clear process and clear review and auditing inside of a company. I think that it is unfortunate, but we're seeing a lot of companies, they have to mess up pretty badly at least once before they put that kind of um, data hygiene in place and really start thinking about it. Um, we have started doing uh, trainings on something we call lean data practices, which is real easy, kind of here's how to think about the way you handle data. Um, and part of that is actually the security of the data because if if it's not secure, the game's done. The game's over. Mm -hmm. Andrew, did you want to? So two points on both of those really insightful uh, comments. One is that the people who are not in the room when we're creating these products are the lawyers and are the sort of ethicists about it. Uh, and the recognition that all companies now are data companies, right? The person who started that teddy bear. I mean, who thinks teddy bears are smart, right? But now all companies think that they can add value by collecting data, and, and they need to have the experts uh, in place to talk about the risk. And that's certainly true also with the policing space, right? Police tend to find information when they can. They're not necessarily tech experts, and they're also going to be making these same mistakes, but with greater consequences to uh, liberty. The other piece of both this is that in an audience where uh, you would hope maybe the market might have an answer, I think by doing things like what Mozilla is doing, which is like pushing people to uh, improve their own internal security practices as a competitive advantage on a, on a market basis. Like, we are a better company because we're not trying to collect all this. We, you should buy our baby monitor as opposed to someone else because we understand security and the rest. You're actually creating better incentives for companies to do the right thing. And I think that part of the problem is getting people who are rushing into this space, this IoT space, just seems like it's, you know, everything can be datafied. We'll figure out later what we'll do with the money. Data is gold and the rest of it. Uh, needs to have some cautions put in because it may be the case that the companies that are more protective of your data, that are taking security seriously, will actually be in a better place, like economically and in the market, to, to succeed. And so I think that, that it's really valuable what you guys are doing because you're pushing people to think about that as a, an economic uh, a value. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think actually, just to, to piggyback on that a little bit, Cloud Pets, again, is, is super indicative. Um, when we figured out that Cloud Pets, there was no way they were going to update this software if they even could in this teddy bear. Um, we actually went to the marketplaces uh, that, where they were being sold. It turned out by third parties. Um, but Amazon doesn't list it anymore. Target doesn't list it anymore. I think Walmart took it down pretty quickly. Um, and it, that hopefully provides that economic incentive in a really clear way. Yeah, and I, and I think another, in addition to these sort of retailers listing it, you know, one of the, the great facts about IoT is that they're very interactive devices. They spend a lot of time talking to each other, and there's uh, an increasing number of them that are sort of connected to these hubs, right? You know, Google Home, Alexa. Um, and so those hubs are actually a good place to deal with a lot of this too, right? If you can get Alexa to say, well, I'm not going to talk to you if you haven't changed your default password or, you know, something like that. You can encourage these sort of companies who maybe have a little more sway to care about this, and that can sort of push down onto the, the, the places they interact. But that's, but that's also, a big ass of them. Right, but it's also the power of networks. I, I think that we need to conceptually stop thinking of these as this teddy bear, this object, but think of it as the network space 
because the network space can be protected. I mean, one of the dangers in security and all this is you might, all of you probably who have an iPhone on right now, like you update regularly for security patches. That's what that is doing when you're getting the iOS update that comes at the wrong time of day. Um, but you're not going to do that with your smart fridge, right? You're not going to buy a new smart fridge every two years, right? You're going to buy it every 10 years. And companies are going to go bankrupt. And what's going to happen to that data when you're in bankruptcy? They want to get rid of what's their value when they're in bankruptcy? The data, right? And so if you haven't built in these protections at the front end, but what happens on the back end, you're going to be opening up a lot of uh, 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 private information in places that you, know, you didn't expect when grandma bought the smart teddy bear because it sounded like a good idea. There's been a mention of the Alexa and Google Home. I think they're probably the most popular or uh, certainly most notable of the IoT devices. Uh, and a question uh, for the panel, what's, what's the actual data that, that, that law enforcement would have access to in an investigation into one of these? Uh, is, it, is it audio? Is that, that plain, plain text transcripts? What's the actual uh, degree of intimacy of the data? Uh, are they always on? Does anyone have any ideas on? I have four Google Homes okay. in my house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is slight overkill, um, but incredibly, incredibly useful. Um, and I, so I'm, that's the one that I'm familiar with in terms of some of these protections and preferences. Um, and one of the things, they, they did get the, meet the minimum security standard, by the way. Um, I don't know what their creepy factor is, uh, but they do talk to you and listen. Um, and, and I think that there's, but what Google has done has actually put some, assurances online if you go look at your preferences and you can delete your search results, which that's all it really is doing unless you're commanding something in your home like the thermostat. Um, but I think that, I mean, Andrew will have a better <laughs> uh, legal answer, but there's a lot of data there and it is a very intimate data. Um, there's been some really hilarious interactions with this little smart thing that all of my other stuff is connected to. Um, and it will just kind of blindly answer anything you want. There was a point where my significant other like, was joking and asked it, oh, oh, how do we spice up our sex life? And then it goes, well, I found a result on the web for you and started reading it. Like, no, stop. <laughs> this is the worst idea ever. Um, but those, that's not actually that weird of an interaction when you're thinking about this as just a part of your home. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to, to weigh in. I believe this is the case with Google, I'm not certain of Alexa, but they do have what are called watchwords, um, which means that it, it uh, isn't actually recording. I mean, it's, it's constantly listening, but that data is very ephemeral until you say, okay, Google, um, or I think, hey, Alexa. Um, and at that point, it actually starts, the data actually starts being recorded in a more permanent way. You know, that's when it actually gets sent back up to the, to the cloud to investigate. So it's unlikely to have just an audio recording of your conversation un, unless you say something that either is the watchword or sounds enough like the watchword that it starts listening to you. So, um, but yeah, that said, it will. And after you say the watchword, it will listen to whatever you choose to say. And just remember, that's today. And I think you're, you're actually right about where it is. But there are companies that are trying to push other kinds of insights. Uh, even as I was sitting here listening, I got something on my phone about the, this article in The Guardian today, talking about a British AI company that wants to figure out your moods and whether you're coughing, which might mean you have a cold, and they'd be able to then you know, send you information about cold medicine or uh, other things you might have. There's, there's a sense that maybe you could find out if people are depressed or maybe there, there's abuse going on in the homes. And so this is not happening now, but the technology that is embedded in our homes 
could allow that if you wanted to. And that may be a case of companies that there could be a race to the bottom as opposed to a race to the top. Um, there could be a recognition that a lot of what has happened is if you pay for a more expensive product, you have more security and privacy. But if you want something free, the cost of that free is your data. Right? So you can imagine instead of paying whatever it costs for an Alexa, which does have some protections, then maybe you would take the free device, but the cost of that free device is that that device is going to be listening to you and seeing what you want and what you like and what you do. And that's a, an amazing consumer advertising platform, right? And we just haven't seen that quite yet because it, the world's been dominated by both the big companies and companies that are conscious of the pushback from uh, uh, consumers. But you can imagine that the more you give away free, the more people say, hey, I can get a, the equivalent of a free Alexa, and I'm only, it's only costing the data of how I query it for you know, improvements on whatever. Maybe I'll take that trade-off. And then we're, we're in a different space. What's the legal standard required for access to this information from law enforcement's perspective? So if you're a detective, you go into a house, you see a, a, a body on the floor, a obvious violent death, but there's also a, a Google Home in the living room. Uh, what do you politely ask? Do you have a subpoena, a warrant? What, what's the actual standard required at the moment for law enforcement to access that information? So, you know, it's somewhat open. Uh, right now, what has happened, out of the abundance of caution, usually law enforcement will, will get a warrant. Uh, so in this New Hampshire case, there was a murder of two women. Uh, there was a person who was the uh, suspect because this home also had a biometric camera to get in. So there were, he was uh, ID'd from that. Uh, but there's also an Alexa in the house. And the police uh, went to a, a judge and said, hey, there are two dead people. We know this person was there. We hope, think, that Alexa might have some clues about what, what happened during the murder. We don't know exactly what happened. Uh, we think we have probable cause uh, that this device will have information. And the judge signed that warrant, asking Amazon to turn it over. And Amazon actually has resisted a little bit. I think they might have an argument, because without the watchword, you don't actually know um, whether or not it collected anything. On the other hand, if you go back to old-fashioned sort of pre-digital probable cause, you know, if you murder someone in a house, police are going to get a warrant to search that house and be able to find everything in it. And the idea that because it's digital or in Amazon's clouds, it might be a different probable cause standard is something that is just not uh, uh, open. It's not, not, not uh, resolved yet. I do think, though, right now, law enforcement has recognized that in big cases where they don't want to risk losing the evidence, that they'll go after a warrant, get a judge to sign off on it on probable cause, that there is evidence of a crime in this device. Query whether that's true or not. I'm not sure that's actually true in the uh, New Hampshire case. Uh, but it's, it's clearly what they're doing. Whether they need a warrant, whether they could just ask for a subpoena or a court order, you know, Amazon's been pushing back on it, which is, again, one of the things that Professor Daskell was talking about in the earlier thing was law enforcement hasn't really been, I mean, it hasn't always gotten cooperation with these companies that realize it's not in their competitive advantage to keep giving information from your homes to law enforcement. So there's actually been this kind of resistance from uh, 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 the companies to actually give this information. I just wanted to add on to that, that I, I think that part of that, uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of motivations for that resistance, but one of those is is exactly what you're saying about, um, it's, it's unclear to me that the probable cause to search the house should necessarily be probable cause to search the Alexa, because is there, is there any indication that the watchword was actually said? Right, and so I think some of the the concern around 
um, sharing this information is concerned that the people asking for it aren't, um, don't have enough awareness of what the actual capabilities of the device are, what the bounds of the information it might have are, um, so that, the, the, that they're concerned that the reach is overbroad simply because there's a lack of education on the law enforcement side, that they're not convinced that they're aware of what they're actually asking for, and that gives people pause in terms of sharing the information. I think that's really true. I mean, you can imagine if you're a New Hampshire homicide detective and you're going to a New Hampshire judge, uh, probably neither are tech experts. I don't know, I don't wanna, but probably not. And they probably aren't aware of it, which is maybe, again, why Amazon is pushing back to say, do you know what you're asking for? Are you sure you have the predicates to be able to do it? And that may be a conversation, again, like that you're doing of education, edu educating people uh, in all aspects uh, of this world before you ask for information. I'm reminded of the uh, presentation we had earlier uh, that discussed the Australian encryption uh, legislation. And I, while, while listening to, to Heather's presentation, I thought, well, couldn't we end up in a sort of analogous situation where, well, if these devices become more and more secure, we'll have law enforcement more and more demanding that they get some kind of access. Have any of you heard of a, a IoT backdoor push from law enforcement yet? Uh, and if not, is that something we should reasonably fear? I suspect it would be an encryption backdoor rather than specific to IoT. Um, at least that's, if that was my goal, that's how I would do it. And I've certainly kind of, we've worked a lot on this. We've worked on the Australia bill, um, but the proposal from law enforcement to kind of have these backdoors is indicative to me in some ways of that lack of education. I think that we can do a lot better as tech companies to go in and say, here's how it works. Here's where we can help you. Here's where we really can't. Uh, when Mozilla gets orders for, um, to produce information, we're like, that's cute. We don't have it. Um, but that's not always the case, and we have to work with law enforcement, um, but also helping them understand where these tools can be responsibly used to make their lives easier. Um, and I think the encryption debate is very indicative for that, because there are so many cases where when, when they couldn't get the iPhone broken into, for example, it worked out okay. Um, there's a case out of New York, I believe, where they, they tried to get the, um, in order to get Apple to unlock the phone, and they were gearing up for this big court battle, and then they just asked the spouse um, to unlock the phone. Phone was unlocked, done deal. Um, and so thinking through alternate ways to do this rather than weakening the security of these consumer devices, which, I mean, if at some point I should just count how many I have in my home, um, because it's probably 20. Um, like, the fact that backdooring a device, and especially requiring a backdoor in all of them, would actually significantly change the whole industry and my acceptance of it. Yeah, I mean, I, and I was just, I was going to follow up on that with, uh, I think that, you know, we've been talking a lot about law enforcement, but um, you, you can't, and I know I probably don't need to say this to this room, but you can't really make a door, back door without weakening the encryption, and then suddenly you're opening this door that's now to our homes in a very, very serious way. Uh, so... You know, just to say that, that that would be a huge step when it comes to IoT. There, there was a reason that encryption was the first of our five security standards. Yeah. It's really important. And, and particularly because the network nature of IoT means that if you can get into one of these, it's, 
substantially lowers your barrier to getting into everything else in that same house that exists on the same network. You know, they talk to each other a lot, they interact a lot. So if you break into this terribly designed teddy bear, all of a sudden it's not actually that hard to get into the, you know, the wireless router, say. Um, so any weakening any particular piece in this like very complex architecture of this Internet of Things is, is weakening the entire thing. Yeah, I think unfortunately we'll have uh, more cases that Andrew has discussed where they will uh, demand access to information like this biometric entry in part because people install them because they think they're safer. If you could have a, a front door that only lets certain people in, uh, then people might think, well, that's safe. Uh, and that's something I want. Uh, but with government access to it, I suppose that does raise uh, rather worrying questions. Uh, is there evidence, not just in the United States, but uh, I'm thinking more globally uh, of the, the kind of surveillance we should maybe worry about down the road? Are there any countries that are ahead of us when it comes to uh, IoT surveillance or surveillance of certain uh, technologies? A lot of people. A lot of countries are ahead of us on that. Um, and I do think that, I mean, again, I'm going to point to the dystopian sci-fi science fiction. There's a lot of... Um, discussion of what does that future look like, and a lot of it's playing out, um, and it's information control. It's, you know, if, if you're in on these devices, you have this incredible ability um, to, to track everything, and that's a really appealing idea for, you know, a, a less or a more oppressive regime than the United States. My uh, latest uh, Law Review article, they're fascinating to read, only about 70 or 80 pages, detailed <laughs> footnotes. Uh, is about why smart cities are unconstitutional. Because as we are building smart cities, uh, which is sort of this idea of a true IoT-connected world, right, that will monitor as you walk down the sidewalk to see the use of sidewalks, will actually have the, the uh, apartments that will read your face to allow you in. Uh, we'll, we'll have smart cars, which are tracking devices everywhere. It will give you benefits. They'll know how to tax you for your trash because they will only tax you for the waste that you use, not other people, right? All of this is built on an IoT infrastructure. It's literally building the city as your platform, right? If the, if the goal is to create a platform uh, to be the Google or Facebook of the world, if you build the city, like Google's doing in Canada or trying to do in, in Canada in, uh, outside Toronto, they're sort of in talks, it's not going so well, but they're, they're in talks and they're moving forward uh, with it, uh, they are actually going to get an incredibly powerful sense of how you live in this urban space, where you go, where you shop, what you buy, um, they might actually try to uh, anonymize a lot of it because they don't really need to know it, you personally, uh, but they're going to be able to collect this, right? And so I do think that we are moving to this future where it won't be that. I mean, in D.C. and other places, it's not necessarily going to be that, but the ability when you walk into Whole Foods here in D.C. and they know who you are because you have an Amazon Prime subscription and you know that you buy, you know, blueberries and strawberries every Sunday and they know your name and, and your income and everything else, like, they're tracking a lot of more information. They add your doorbell and see who shows up in your house with the ring, Amazon ring. Like, it's building into this world where the consumer surveillance is growing in power. Um, and there will be a question of, okay, why is it okay for Amazon to have that and not law enforcement investigate a murder because we've got a murder victim, and we should care about that murder victim, right? And that's going to be the tension of how, once we've built the architecture of surveillance, it's very hard to say law enforcement shouldn't have it for a legitimate purpose. Which I think goes back to a question you asked earlier of, like, what can companies do about this? And I, and I think that 
the more we get into the pervasiveness, the more companies are going to have to start thinking about ways to implement these things in a sort of in a way that they can work without requiring to know things. Um, and so like what I mean by that, for instance, you could imagine the way facial recognition, you could design a facial recognition system such that you have a biometric doorbell and it's only supposed to admit certain people, but the doorbell doesn't actually know who those people are. It just has some sort of, uh, some of a map of a face, right? And the map of the face is written in a particularly computery kind of way and so it's that a human can't look at it and reconstruct who that is. And so then all the doorbell is doing is you walk, you stand in front of it, and it either says yes or no. Right? It doesn't say like, oh yes, James is allowed inside. It just says like that face matches a profile of a face I have and that face is allowed inside. Um, and so you could think about designing these systems in such a way that they can sort of know enough to do their jobs without knowing any more than that. Um, but that's difficult. It's a hard thing to do, so. Mm -hmm. Did you want to add in? No. I, I agree. Great, okay. Uh, I wanted to, to comment on or ask a question about, about Andrew's last uh, statement there. Wouldn't uh, someone perhaps make the argument that, well, in, in a world where Internet uh, of Things devices proliferate and everyone uses them and you're getting in your, uh, your, your driverless computer that's kind of a car and you're going around using your face to, to go shopping and all the rest of it, haven't you uh, signaled to the world that you don't, believe you have an expectation of privacy in that behavior? Uh, do you, are you really allowed to push back against law enforcement when they ask about data that relates to your public activities out on the sidewalk? I mean, you know, a reasonable expectation of privacy test in a world of surveillance where you're giving up your privacy in return for these goods doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? And it may mean that we need to rethink our standards and tests in terms of how we think about the Fourth Amendment, right? The, Cat's test, which gave you the reasonable expectation of privacy in 1967. It's talking about literally a telephone booth, like you went in and put in the nickel and you got right, doesn't exist in this world, right? And so we may need uh, to adapt. And I think you saw the court and carpenter start struggling with maybe our, our precedents that we've built don't quite fit this new world. Uh, but I think you're right. That's exactly the argument about how on earth can you claim an expectation of privacy when everything you're doing is essentially being revealed to some third party. Maybe not the government directly, but to some third party, why on earth would we uh, protect it? But the court in Carpenter said, the fact that you're giving your cell locational data to your cell phone provider isn't enough to sort of eviscerate your expectation of privacy. There still is a claim that this kind of aggregated long-term surveillance uh, is a search for Fourth Amendment purposes, and at least there's some protection. So I think you're right. That is the claim. That is where we'll go. Uh, but I also think that hopefully there will be uh, creative lawyers pushing back and saying, no, that, that shouldn't be, shouldn't be the, the default. Otherwise, there's no Fourth Amendment. Yeah. No, and I, I think um, I'm really glad that judges are starting to say, wait a second, this, this doesn't necessarily make sense. The Carpenter, we really were um, excited about the Carpenter decision. Um, but when we're talking about expectations in, in the non-legal sense, not a lawyer, um, the... Uh, the measurement for me is, was the user surprised? I suspect the dude who killed his wife who was wearing a Fitbit was super surprised that the Fitbit was used in this way, right? Now, in that case, I think it's pretty valid um, to, to go to Fitbit and say, hey, you have data? Question mark, question mark, can we look? Um, but when we're talking about you know, much different kinds of things, maybe it's a traffic ticket or something, I don't know. Um, 
when, when your easy pass tells the police that you were on XYZ road and you were lying to them about something, you know, we love these devices and we don't think about how they could be used. Um, and I'm not even going to call it abused, but they can be abused too. Uh, and that surprise and expectation. Um, you know, tech companies, we do a lot of user research. We sit down and we say, what do you expect from this? Um, and sometimes it's really, really interesting. Um, you know, if, if you sit them down and you say, what do you think this does? What are your expectations here? And I think that that's not a legal standard, but it might be a really interesting thing to play into some of those arguments. Well, uh, I, I was uh, at the, the court for the commentary oral arguments and was excited when the, the, the uh, decision came down. But uh, maybe I could just throw some, some cold water on some of the optimism because if I recall, uh, in the, the majority in, in Carpenter says, look, here's a list of all the surveillance techniques that are still totally fine, uh, that this is a very narrow decision. It only deals with uh, cell phone location information. Uh, CCTV is still totally fine. Uh, it seems like it's going to be a while until the current court seriously reconsiders uh, something like we've just discussed, the smart city. Uh, are there reasons to be more optimistic? My, my non-lawyery non version is that as, as people who use these devices on a regular basis start making the laws, start making it to the Supreme Court, start making the decisions here, um, I think that we're going to reevaluate how we treat them from an expectations standpoint, I hope. I, along with Kata, or not with Kata, but I wrote an amicus brief for Carpenter on the side, and I'm more cautiously optimistic because I think the court reached out to get that result. If you read it carefully, it's not as compelling an argument as, as you might make. There's a lot of gaps and a lot of questions open for, for future litigation. But it was a, 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 a moment to say, we're not just going to go back to our, our past precedent in a non-digital world. Digital is different, and we're going to think differently. And so I think that the, my takeaway from Carpenter is anytime you're talking about aggregated locational data, which is, in an IoT world, it's a ton of it, right? That smart car, tracking you where you go, right? Your Fitbit, that's, the power is locational data. Uh, maybe not your teddy bear cats in your home, but homes are more protected, right? I'm actually more cautiously optimistic that Carpenter signals a new way forward where at least some majority of this court uh, will be conscious of it. Because they could have just said, we have precedent, we're done, Carpenter loses, there's no new privacy. Uh, Hannah, I had a question about the, uh, in, in a world where we have manufacturers and producers who are aware of the privacy concerns and they implement uh, certain, uh, certain policies, uh, what, do we run the risk of having to constantly opt in to giving up data all the time, that every time we want to use a device? Uh, some might say in, in the private sector, those making these devices, that uh, policy policies related to privacy that we've been discussing might make certain products unusable, or is that uh, an exaggerated fear? Do you mean unusable simply because they'll require sort of so much like bureaucratic infrastructure around them in terms of opting in? Or? So, so that, right, but also that uh, the, the people using the devices will not want to use the device because they're constantly being asked about um, the privacy and they're constantly being asked to opt in to certain uh, data releases. Um. Uh, I would, I, I personally think that there's a way to do that well. 
Um, right, and so there's a lot um, of really sort of wonderful research in terms of user interface design and just sort of product design in general of how do you make it clear what's going on just based on your design of the product in general. And that, that doesn't, you know, I think we've gotten ourselves into a position where we tend to think of uh, consent or opt-in as like we popped up a warning screen and had legal text on it that said, I see that like indemnify, you can use this forever, I don't know legal words. but. Uh, there, that's not the only way that it, it has to be done, right? Um, you know, we have, you know, the little icons that uh, when you're waiting for a website to load, there's a little spinny wheel that tells you data is being transmitted, something's happening here. When you upload something, there's a little arrow pointing up that gives you this sort of visual indicator that something's happening, data is leaving one place and going off into another place. Um, and I think that when you start to design your products with the intent of, uh, of pulling back the curtain a little bit, that you can build a lot of this uh, information into the design of the product, right? Um, and, and users learn, right? With, for instance, like a great example of users learning like what an iconography means is that everybody knows that the save icon means save when we're talking about a generation that has never seen a floppy disk, which is what that icon is. So users can learn these things from context, from interacting with them regularly. So I, I personally, maybe it's maybe I'm being too optimistic now, but I do believe that it is possible to design these products in such a way that convey a lot of this information without it just being a huge, incredible added burden. Well, I do want to uh, eventually turn over to the uh, audience for Q&A, but uh, I want to ask maybe a pessimistic question. Uh, what evidence is there that many people care about privacy when it comes to this sort of stuff? So we had the, the Snowden revelations, uh, but there wasn't a massive, uh, massive adoption of uh, devices and systems that would keep them safe. Uh, are we worried up here on the panel that maybe there are just tens or hundreds of millions of people who will say, actually, I dislike the convenience of these things, and I'm not a target, and I'm not worried. I'm glad that Mozilla puts out a rating, but I'm fine to buy the baby monitor because who would, who, who cares about me? Is that, a, is that something that keeps you up at night? <laughs> I think it's a, actually a very valid stance. If you've taken the time to actually look at this and you say, eh, I'm fine with that baby monitor. It's half the price of the good one. Um, and you're an educated consumer. That's a good outcome. I'm okay with that outcome for them. Um, but I want everyone to be able to make their own decision. And I think uh, when, you, when you place those preferences into context, people do care. Now, it's, it, I hate privacy surveys that say, do you care about privacy? Because of course you do. Like, it's, it's an abstract word, it's a value, you feel like you should. Um, but there's a study that I really like, and it was a qualitative study um, from Pew, that, that gave five different circumstances and asked about privacy preferences and expectations. One of them was a smart uh, thermostat, one of them was like social media advertising, um, I forget what the other ones were, but the, the really interesting thing to come out of this study is how strong people's preferences were in each context and how different they were. And the reactions were very, very different. Um, and what I took from it is that users look at these products and they want to be they want to be respected and treated as a human being, as a person. Um, and when that happens, and when it's useful at the same time, they are okay with it. They, you, you know, I I trust Google. Google has my data. Great. Um, but that doesn't. I'm, 
this is probably this is the very optimistic answer to your pessimistic question. Um, but I think that people know that the tech is there, and and I think maybe the Snowden revelations were were kind of the wonky version of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So people are paying attention um, to all of these Facebook missteps uh, and at least asking the questions and realizing what they don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll also, I, I would, the, I agree with everything you said except for one minor line in there, which is that people know that the tech is there. And I'm not sure that's always true. That is, you're right, that um, is not always true at all. Well, and, and I, I just say that because I, I think that this is a, a place where the tech companies, the tech world has sort of failed users to some degree in the sense that the Snowden revelations happened and people said that they care about privacy, but stop making phone calls, stop sending text messages? I mean, what, what was people's option other than, you know, figuring out Signal, which then trying to get your entire social network to join Signal so that you can use Signal instead of text messages so that you could ask your brother to get milk at the grocery store. Like, the, the weight of the problem is so sort of diffuse, and uh, the, the difficulty of implementing the solutions for a long time has been quite difficult, right? Like, a lot of these products that we say, like, well, sure, use Tor. Like, it took a long time for Tor to be a really usable product. And these things are absolutely moving in that direction, and I think that's great. Um, and so I think that tech companies and, you know, the technologists in the world who do great work, I mean, Mozilla is a great example that, like, Firefox is an amazing, is a, like, wonderful product, and it's, I think, largely open-source development All open-source. All open-source development. And so, like, there's, there is this, this push that is happening to make it so that you can care, you don't have to care a ton. You can just care a little bit, and you can still find products that suit your needs and aren't a huge headache to use. So I think um, as long as people keep caring enough that small differences will drive adoption in better products, then we can keep moving in that direction. I think people care about privacy. I think people cared about Snowden. I think people cared about Cambridge Analytica. And I think even you know this week's uh, headline in the New York Times on Monday was all of the third-party uh, apps that are sort of taking your locational data and able to see where you go to work and how you go to work was its own way of showing that people care. It created a, a buzz and a scandal and, and education. I think that we're seeing the, the more we understand, the more I think people will say this might be a, pro a problem and we need to control that. It's about data control about who gets it. Maybe we're okay with this person getting it, but we didn't know you were going to sell it to this person or allow it to this person. And so maybe there'll be more of a, a conversation of control. And I don't want to get into GDPR, but I think that in some ways you're seeing an experiment in Europe about data control from a, a personal standpoint that has ups and downs, but has a, a, some sense of there is another path and people do care about this uh, for the most part. And I think you, the fact that we're having this conversation today is part of the reason to show that some people care, and maybe if we educate more people, more people will care. Well, on that note, I'm happy to open it up to the audience here for Q&A. Uh, a, few, a few points here. Uh, please do wait to be called on uh, and announce your, your name and affiliation. Uh, I would remind everyone that this is the question and answer session, not the thesis statement, monologue, biography and answer session. Uh, and with that, I'll begin with the gentleman here in the front. Uh, hello, uh, Alex Howard. Um, three years ago, I was working at the Huffington Post, and I got pitched a story about connected toothbrushes. I said, we'll connect your toothbrushes. Oh, that's interesting. And here's the thing. We'll give you a 15% break in your insurance if you share the data with us. So now, three years on, look around. Lots more connected devices. 
Um, if we put uh, your car on our network, maybe we'll give you a dynamic break on your premiums. Mm -hmm. And it's not hard to anticipate all the insurers asking for whatever the activity is for it to be connected back. Um, what are the uh, security concerns about that? I saw someone worrying about uh, your car rebooting itself again and again. Um, talk about the blue screen of death. Um, and what are the, the legal concerns? Because um, you've already talked about your data being used against you in a court of law, like the logs are going to be used. Um, but what framework should we be introducing um, into a world where you can see the insurers have a lot of skin in the game, they're very powerful, and the tech companies want to cater to this, and consumers, they're being good about adhering to brushing their teeth, get a cheaper deal. How do we prevent this panopticon entering into my bathroom? <laughs> I didn't even know connected toothbrushes were a thing. Mm -hmm. um, I have one, but I have not connected it. <laughs> I did, it's, it's in the lobby article. It was a Father's Day gift, don't judge, but I have not connected it. It's interesting because I think we need almost different frameworks to think about it. Um, and what you're talking about is really eligibility determinations and scoring, right? Like, you brush your teeth, you're a better, you probably take care of yourself better, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we have some frameworks to, to talk about that and think about that, but I don't think they are quite enough on point. Like, because we're talking insurance eligibility when you're looking at stuff like the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, and then suddenly you've got the connected toothbrush, and where does that fit in? Open question, I think. And, and it's not just the toothbrush. So there is at least one insurer now that's requiring you to wear some equivalent of a Fitbit to actually monitor your health in real time to get the benefits of your health insurance or your life insurance or something like this. And you get a better deal because they know exactly how healthy you are. Uh, and you can see why it's incredibly powerful for them. But you also can see, like, if your benchmark is you must have a wireless electric toothbrush, you're cutting out a whole group of people who can't afford a wireless electric toothbrush, who actually use like toothbrushes, like we've always done, right? I mean, and like, so if that's your market for insurance, you're actually already changing the game and probably excluding people who can't do it, which is gonna create a whole different kinds of risk factors and that. Again, car insurance is really fascinating, right? We, car insurance is a weird world where you're kind of stereotyped because like young boys are idiots and they drive terribly and it takes a while to get out of that. Uh, and yet, if you were a responsible young boy, 16 year old, you might want to benefit from the fact that you shouldn't have to pay the premium for your idiot friends. Uh, and you can see the, 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 the temptation to have this real, instead of this rough proxy for insurance, to actually have a real sense. So you're a safe driver, you benefit. You're not a safe driver, you don't benefit. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that, that it's going to be not just the problems we saw like with credit risk scoring, but with health risk scoring, who gets insurance, who's opted out of insurance, and all of these things. And I think you're right to raise it uh, because my sense is the legal framework in terms of consumer regulatory protections is just not that rich. Uh, it's going to be affected by the industry that's going to lobby for these things to show why it's, it's a good thing. Uh, and the people, the consumers who really need uh, someone to push back to say, I might not get insurance if I can't, if I have to wear this Fitbit or I don't, can't charge it on electricity, all these problems are going to get discriminated against. And like, we should be having that conversation now before uh, we get too far along. Because what has happened in all of these spaces is the tech companies are rushing in, offense tech companies, but they're rushing in, pushing products without thinking through these risks and the legal uh, implications. And then we're sort of playing catch up of scandals and problems and discrimination and bias that we haven't thought through. Where if we were thinking about it now, we could actually have those conversations and come up 
with better products and smarter uh, regulatory systems. Yeah, and, and I think that the, the as far as the risks go, I mean, there's a couple things that concern me. I mean, the biggest one, of course, is just the more you pass around data, that's more, it's a greater attack surface. Um, the other thing that does concern me a little bit is, you know, we talk a lot about the use of technology sort of in context. Um, and that both means that users have to understand the context that it's shifted in, but it's also worth noting that technology is often developed with a context in mind. And if you change that context, you have to be really aware of how the technology should be expected to behave differently. So if you created a connected toothbrush that was originally just supposed to show you a dashboard of how often you brush your teeth and sort of gamification, brush your teeth more, it'll be great. Now suddenly when that's tied to your insurance premiums, you care a lot more about the accuracy of it. You care a lot more about knowing when it's buggy. You care a lot more about you know, how, how much it's, it's knowing, right? Like, well, I didn't brush for very long, but I brushed really carefully and really hard, right? And it's like, so all of a sudden, the, the technology, it raises the stakes of any failure in the technology, and, and that's concerning to me. Yeah. Um, so I want to take a, a question at the back on my left. So way, way at the back. Yes, the yes, lady at the back there. Keep the hand for it. Microphone coming. Hi, I'm Nancy Weir, Urban Institute. Um, I'm curious how you think, as you're talking through the, the, the movement in technology, we can keep the the Constitution in front of us and the legal issues in front of us in a way that still continues to protect people's privacy and civil liberties. Read more law review articles. Uh. I mean, are there any movements in terms of the legal community to really look at this carefully and begin to think about and talk to and convene uh, folks around these? It's kind of like the civil rights movement you know what I'm saying? I mean, we're in a new age now of technology. Is there any movement in that regard? Well, I, I do think that you know, big data policing and surveillance is a civil rights issue because it impacts different communities differently. Uh, and where we're seeing targeted surveillance tends to be poor communities and communities of color. Um, slightly different from the IoT space in some ways because in a weird way with the IoT space, because it costs more, you're actually talking about uh, people who are surveilling themselves out of like this luxury and convenience. Who needs a wired toothbrush, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's like those people are like me are you know not necessarily the people who would always be uh, targeted by police. But I think in terms of where is the legislative push uh, in the policing space, you're seeing it on a local level. The ACLU and EFF are doing wonderful jobs of pushing back on uh, uh, local surveillance ordinances. Uh, the C-Cops I was mentioned earlier, and other things that Jake and other people mentioned. Um, but in terms of the IoT space, is there a federal legislation that anyone's thinking about? FTC powering? I don't I think really know. There's a lot of interest in legislation right now coming out of this, you know, you can call it tech lash. Um, and the tech industry deserves a lot of these criticisms. Um, but there, there are definitely folks who are trying to be smarter and better about it. Um, and there are folks on the Hill trying to say, wait a second, we used to be leaders on privacy regulation and legislation in the 70s. What happened? Um, and did we let this happen? Uh, and so there is, you know, murmurs of what if we, what if we regulate this in a baseline way? Uh, and I think that would be really useful. CDT just put out uh, a legislative draft, in fact. I should let you talk about this. Um, but there is actually attention, and I do think I'm optimistic, again. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you, you covered the space well, but of course I will plug that CDT, Center for Democracy and Technology, my organization has put out a draft of baseline privacy legislation for exactly this reason. I think trying to deal with this in a, in a sort of piecemeal way does mean that you're being expected to consider the same question and get it right like 17 times in a row instead of really taking one big push to say like, here's the thing we care about, here are the rights we want to maintain, let's do this once, let's do it right, so we don't have to keep um, playing whack-a-mole. Uh, I'll take uh, the gentleman here in the front. Uh, thank you, Dave Rabinowitz. Uh, artificial intelligence is not magic. It's just replacing a person with a machine. So, uh, so Alexa basically replaces a personal assistant. And if you hired a personal assistant, that person would know everything about you. What kind of protection do you have from the police questioning that person and is there any reason that protection uh, for questioning Alexa should be any different? Well, I'm just going to make one thing, which is that you know people forget and machines tend not to. I, I think it would be good if they did it more often, but. Um. I think that you know. I think it's a good point. I think there are probably some contractual NDAs you might make, seeing it play out in the news. You know, maybe you don't trust your lawyer completely. Uh, they might turn on you. Um, but uh, the, or, or 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 is themselves charged. There are all sorts of ways around crime fraud exception, all the rest of it that that could be there. Um, so that's the sort of third party. Like when you reveal a secret to a third party, the Supreme Court has said you have no expectation. Uh, of keeping that in common. You trust the wrong person, so be it. You trust the wrong person. Is Alexa that same person? I think it's somewhat different. I do think it's somewhat uh, distinctive in terms of it, but I think that your argument or that argument will be used to push back by law enforcement and say, look, this is no difference. You asked Alexa how to get rid of a dead body. You asked your assistant how to get rid of a dead body. You're on the hook for both. Um, so I think, that, I think that's a, you know, will have to be played out in the law. Yeah, and I think we're going to have to think about the things that differentiate that person from Alexa or Google or um, any of these services. But you know, because I don't think of it nearly the same way. I know not to ask my personal assistant how to get rid of a body. <laughs> there's a there's a cultural norm and expectation um, that that uh, we just don't have with Siri. <laughs> like, it's weird. Um, sorry. No, I was just going to say I will also say that, um, and you know. Technology is getting better all the time, so maybe this won't be a problem eventually, but um, machines also aren't good at nuance, right? So you probably wouldn't ask your personal assistant to get rid of a body, but you could say, like, oh, I could just kill her right now, right? And understanding that that's not an actual threat of violence is not something that machines are always going to get right. Right. Uh, yes, I want to get the, the woman at the back. Good afternoon. My name is Maka Taylor, and I hail from D.C., Global Gains Consulting Service. First of all, thank you all for your panel. This is the one I'm here for specifically. Uh, someone referred to, I believe, the Fourth Amendment, and I do not feel safe in my own home. Like, that's just the bottom line. It's really creepy that if I say something three seconds later, it'll pop up on my screen, or there's a commercial, and... For me, that's extremely creepy. Not only that, but I've called myself on my own phone at least three times, and we're talking landline and cell phone. So I'm asking that what 
protections can a consumer, because I also feel like I'm at the mercy of, right? I live in 2018. There's a certain way the world flows. Either you catch up or you get left behind. So in my home, I don't, I don't want a smart home. I don't have a smart home. I don't want a Google. I don't want an Alexa. But I'm continuously interacting with a world that does. So my first question is, at the point you've actually asked or sent your foyer out to say if you're being watched and they can only tell you we won't confirm or deny, what uh, recourse does a civilian have when they know, because sense and intuition is better than anything, that there's something going on? How do I figure out how to put my finger on it? Or can at least all four of you commit to being my friend to help me work through this process? <laughs> uh, I'll commit to friendship before passing on to you. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that one of the undercurrents of this entire conversation is that there is an imbalance of power. Consumers don't have a huge amount of power, but I actually like what you bring up a lot as a point just for people to think about is like the, the choices that I make in my home affect other people. Um, I, I do have a Google Home in my guest bedroom that I also use as an office because um, it's how I play music. Uh, and I do actually like unplug it when I have people stay with me because they don't know it's there. They don't have the expectation. They will be creeped out. Um, when it just starts talking to them, um, which has happened. Uh, there's a broadcast feature where you can talk to the hub in the other room. Super creepy. Um, that's apparently where my creepy line is. Um, but I think that, that figuring out how to, and, and that's why we're starting with educate. Um, if you don't know what it does, you don't know it's there, you don't know that um, you have choices, um, and you don't know how those choices impact other people, um, but that is, a, that is step one. That is nowhere near the end goal. Um, but yes, I'll be your friend. <laughs> I like that for you. I think you speak for everyone who is struggling with what are the um, balances and protections that exist out there. Most of us don't know. We think, well, maybe the fourth man protects us. It really isn't going to protect you uh, from consumer space. It might protect you from the government getting in there. Maybe there are laws out there that should protect you, but we don't really know what they are. And in many ways... We're all in that same uh, position of sort of struggling through this new era of technology as the devices proliferate around us in almost every way. There will not be opt-out in some ways. You will not be able to buy a car that isn't smarter than you uh, in the future, right? It's just everything is going to be uh, connected. You're gonna, when you're at the dealer, you're going to sign this document. It's really going to give them locational data that you can't get out of because you want the car, and you didn't know this was going to be a part of it. You just, you just sold a whole bunch of things you didn't know you were selling. And everyone's going to be in that sort of disempowered position. And a response to that, there are two responses. Right? One is you convince companies to be in the space of being more secure, privacy, protective, whatever, and you could just opt in by buying that technology. Or you ask for governments to sort of step in in the proxy to sort of deal with that imbalance and have some checks on it. And again, depending on your you know, political leanings, you might favor one way or the other. But something needs to happen because right now the companies themselves don't see that need because there hasn't been, until you guys did it, a comparison chart where you knew which teddy bear to buy, right? There just wasn't, that didn't exist. Like the, everyone was saying, I don't know which one do I buy. I don't know which one's going to spy on me. Which one's going to talk to the NSA? Which one? I don't know. And now there are, are, you know, groups that are doing that. And I think we need more of that. We need more of these conversations, more education, uh, and more consumer choice to be able to put the thumbs on the scales of the ones that are more secure and more protective, uh, but probably will not solve the problem of calling yourself 
on your phone. <laughs> All right, uh, we are in the final lap, the last five minutes. Uh, please, if you can, uh, keep the questions brief so we can get to everyone. We're at the back, I'll take this gentleman here, third row. Hugh Gustafson, George Washington University. I have a question about the vulnerability of data on cell phones and laptops when you enter the country. So the police need a warrant to look in my cell phone or my laptop if I'm at home. When I come in the country, they can treat it like an address book. The courts have upheld this. I have a lot of very sensitive human subjects data on my laptop, so I can't take it abroad with me. Uh, is there any prospect of changing this? There are lawsuits. I think, uh, I don't know if AEFF is a part of it, but it's from the ACLU and in Massachusetts has filed lawsuits uh, uh, trying to say that you need more than just the fact that you entered our country, like this country, to get everything on your cell phone and your laptop. It's incredible, right? It's not only incredible in terms of the personal data you might have personally or who you work for, but even from a, a, uh, a competitive consumer, like if you're an, a if you work for a company in another country and you come to the U.S., it means the U.S. border guard just got all of your data in your, your, your laptop. That doesn't make, it doesn't make sense, but it is the law. Uh, there have been lawsuits that have sort of tried to push back that maybe you need some kind of suspicion, some kind of warrants, but we're not, we certainly haven't gotten there uh, uh, yet. Uh, but maybe, maybe there, there will be in the future. But I think it's, worth, I think it's a real vulnerability and it is uh, going to you know, impact lives, right? The fact that you are giving up the security of the people you represent and you work with, it's terrible. Uh, I'll take an opportunity to, to plug. I was at a, a Senate uh, subcommittee hearing with someone from the ACLU in Georgetown talking about this particular issue. Uh, there are uh, Senate and House members who are trying, who do have legislation that would uh, eliminate the so-called border exception to the Fourth Amendment by imposing a warrant requirement, but uh, that's certainly not the case at the moment. Uh, so Senators Ron Wyden and Rand Paul are certainly interested in this issue. Uh, I will go to the back again, the, the gentleman back there. Hi, thanks. Jason Pilmeyer from the Global Network Initiative. Two very quick questions. Um, first, um, you guys haven't talked a lot about when devices may be sending data back to other countries vis-a-vis -vis whom you don't have any protections legally. Um, and just wondering if there are any thoughts or, or sort of thinking that your organizations or you individually are doing on that issue. And then the other one, thinking um, to the lady's question in terms of how do we kind of protect ourselves, I'm wondering if any of you have heard about um, either product development or work going on in standards development processes to um, allow um, basically consumers to protect themselves through, you know, are there ways that you could configure your wireless router, which is basically the nexus between all of your in-home devices and the rest of the world, um, so that even if the devices you buy aren't particularly well designed or haven't sort of had privacy built in, your wireless router can protect you, you know, from them. Um, or if you're an individual walking around in the world and you know, you're know you interfacing especially uh, with devices, your devices with other devices, is there a way that you could, um, you know, is there technology that you could activate on your devices to basically signal to other devices in the, in the environment that you don't consent to having your data uh, transmitted by them or processed by them? Okay, so in, in the final uh, two minutes or so, can we have three of you answer those two questions? There are very interesting hard to explain, not consumer friendly technical ways to do that. <laughs> um, that uh, if you spend some time, you can look at, and I don't even remember what they're called, you may, 
like the separating out the networks. Um, but one, I can't believe I haven't plugged this yet. Look up Mozilla's Project Things. Um, it is an open source, privacy protective IoT framework um, that we are starting to play with and work with manufacturers on. Um, and the hope is, again, to move the, the whole industry in the right direction. Network segmentation, is that what you were thinking? Yes. Network. network segmentation is essentially trying to make sure that all of these devices on your wireless router aren't just sharing the same airspace and thus allowed to talk to each other in, in pretty unrestricted ways. Uh, data in uh, being sent to other countries, is there a concern about that? Very quick. People are starting to think about it, especially in the European context and the German context. Um, I don't know that there's anything um, outside of kind of the European concept of adequacy. Um, that I can, you know, speak to in other, other contexts. But I do know that there are countries where you can have some pretty sketchy practices that nobody cares about, and that's not something that, that manufacturers are, are disclosing. I mean, why would they? Um, right. We're sending your, your data to this terrible, terrible place. Let us tell you about it. This is great marketing. Right. Well, uh, we're now uh, handing off to uh, some other... Uh, speakers to, to give some flash talks, but uh, before that, please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you.